Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Uh, greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, and we're back with the first podcast of 2018. Um, sorry we uh, went radio silent last week, but as some of you may know from reading the G-File, I was flying in a metallic disease vector on my way to Hawaii where I picked up the flu um, or some other hellacious crud. And so I was bedridden for pretty much my entire time in Hawaii and then on the way back, it somehow, uh, I guess metastasized is the wrong word, but evolved into <coughs> a case of pneumonia, which was awesome. And I'm only now basically recovering, but it's great to be back. We're going to try and actually do two podcasts this week to catch up because our corporate paymasters demanded of us, and we want to sort of get back the momentum that we had. Uh, this week's, and speaking of our corporate paymasters, uh, this week's episode of The Remnant is brought to you by Tripping. And as a lot of you may may know, Tripping is one of my uh, favorite sponsors. It's not necessarily one of my favorite activities anymore, ever since I woke up covered in blood, not my own, in that motel years ago. But Tripping, as in Tripping.com, is a website that lets you get the very best possible deal on uh, vacation rentals uh, in uh, thousands of different locations around the world. And, you know, it's funny because I was sick in Hawaii. Uh, one of the best things about it is that we had a, my family has a house out there um, on my wife's side of the family. All the Alaskans used to go to Hawaii because it's the closest warm beach. And one of the great things about having an actual house rather than a hotel is that when you are dying from the bubonic plague, as I seem to be for a while, you can actually sequester yourself away from your family and they can still have a good time without having it uh, having their only domicile turned into a sick ward. And that applies just as much to vacation rentals, where, I mean, I don't think anyone wants to plan on being sick on vacation, but it is one of these things that is a, much better than a hotel because you can actually just sort of treat it like you're being at home and uh, separate yourself out, and you can cook your own food, and you don't have to worry about getting out of your room for the maid service or any of that kind of stuff. And you can kind of veg out. It's also just a great thing because, you know, when we were out there, we had a big chunk of my wife's family. My wife is one of nine kids, so there are a lot of grandkids who were out there, a lot of in-laws. And it's the kind of thing you couldn't possibly do at a hotel um, where everyone got to be together around Grandpa for Christmas morning and open their presents. And it really made it much more of a sort of family thing. And as I keep saying on this thing, this is one of the reasons why I like this advertiser because I actually get behind the product. Um, we were asked to 
spon- we were asked to have a sponsorship recently on another podcast that I was on about uh, a male enhancement product. And I was like, I, I just can't talk about that with a straight face and without making jokes. And it's uh, not something I want to do, but this is something I, I can do. <coughs> Excuse me, sincerely, because I, I, it's a great product and it's a great way to go on vacation. And so anyway, what Tripping.com does is it is basically an aggregator of all of these different websites from VRBO, TripAdvisor, Booking.com, and others. And it lets you sort of comparison shop between all of these different um, sites to get the best deal possible. You save basically an average of 18% um, when you use uh, Tripping.com. And it gives you a much greater variety of, of, of places to look for. Uh, moreover, you help this podcast because if you go to tripping.com forward slash dingo, uh, we get to give uh, my Carolina dog extra treats because that's part of the deal. So don't forget, if you want to save time and money while booking the perfect vacation rental for your next trip, head to tripping.com slash dingo today. That's T-R-I-P-P-I-N-G dot com forward slash Dingo, D-I-N-G-O, tripping.com slash Dingo. So anyway, with that out of the way, Jack, how was your, uh, I have have with me my MUNSIS Jack Butler, who is clean shaven and and well-kempt for the first time I've seen in about a year. Uh, He got a haircut, because before he was a damn hippie. (laughs) Not the uh, first right-winger to call me a hippie. As as Emerson said, there's a uh, certain meanness to conservatism joined by a certain superiority of its fact. And you looked like a damn hippie for a while, and you don't anymore. Anyway, how was your your holiday break? Uh, it was good uh, until I also became sick with something that I couldn't really understand, which bothered, which made, made it worse. It wasn't like a standard flu. Like, my only symptom was... Monsterism? <laughs> no. Uh, Priapism? No. <laughs> uh, that, that we didn't need that. <laughs> uh, well, we can, I'll take that out. <laughs> The only symptom was that my I, I, my stomach just felt bloated and I couldn't eat anything, and it was just it was just no fun. Uh, but that that was only the last three or four days of the period that I was away. So. And you were in in Ohio. Yes, yeah. uh, we're all we're all people seeking warmth steer clear of. Yeah, well, it was pretty fr- freaking cold here too. So anyway, we will uh, we'll be back with some uh, more entertaining banter, which is a very low bar considering how unentertaining this conversation has been. At the end, we'll have some house cleaning or housekeeping stuff at the end as well. But I want to get to our guest this week. It's my friend Michael Rubin. Michael is a very intense scholar of um, all things Middle Eastern. He's a colleague of mine at the American Enterprise Institute. You've, he teaches, um, uh, you know, grand strategy and whatnot to um, all sorts of people uh, in the government and out. And uh, he's written tons for commentary and other places and uh, wanted to talk to him about the Iran situation and also float some pet theories of mine um, past him. So he'll be on in a minute. And thanks for tuning into The Remnant. All right, so we have in studio today uh, my friend and colleague at the American Enterprise Institute, Michael Rubin. Michael is a uh, scholar of all sorts of things, Middle Eastern, and um, he you teach at the War College, is that it? No, at Naval Postgraduate School, which is the one out in Monterey. Okay, that's better. And um, and you also, this is a first for this podcast, you have a bounty on your head in Turkey, right? 
$750,000, but my wife's first reaction was, don't they know you snore? If they knew you snore, <laughs> I'd give them money to take you away. Has, has, has she ever hinted that, you know, during, you know, when you had, forgot to take out the garbage or do the dishes, that maybe she'd turn you in for the bounty? She has hinted that, but on the other hand, I'm better at driving in the ice, so I'm free for until the end of winter. <laughs> okay. Um, I guess most listeners would be like, you can't just drop that without explaining. Why do you have a bounty on your head in Turkey? Well, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who is the leader of Turkey, uh, believes that I insulted him because I wrote about his money laundering, corruption, and basically violations of the law. He considers that an insult. you got to hear both sides. (laughs) I mean, it could be an insult, but also true, right? Well, it's one of the big problems in the Middle East, more seriously, Uh in that I I had written a piece, an analysis, Uh back about three months before the July 2016 coup in Turkey. And I speculated maybe there could be a coup. Mm -hmm. But this is the problem in the Middle East. No one believes that analysts conduct analysis. They always believe they conduct advocacy. So I was calling it like I saw it. And ultimately, there was a coup. And then the conspiracy mode kicks in. And they assume, rather than someone who conducts good analysis by talking to a wide range of people, he must have had inside knowledge. Uh And so it's conspiracy upon conspiracy upon conspiracy. But once you go down that rabbit hole then there's no way to really extricate yourself from it. Right. I mean, I actually think that's kind of a funny phenomenon of projection in a lot of authoritarian, totalitarian, and and paranoid societies where they, sort of in the same way that Americans have this pie-eyed thing that they assume other countries operate like we do, they assume we operate like they do, right? And so, like, Putin was convinced that George W. Bush had Dan Rather fired. Oh, yeah. You know, which is like just not how it works. You know? Well, I mean, the way the way I was put it after spending 14 years in Quaker school and nine years in, in an elite university is multiculturalism was drilled into me. But the way multiculturalism, multiculturalism is taught in the United States is it's about walking into a sushi restaurant and being able to order a mojito. <laughs> it's not about understanding that different peoples think very different ways. And the, one of the worst things we can do is analysis, uh, as analysts is is basically mirror image and project our own value system onto others. And yet that's what we do time and time again. And then there's a problem not only in diplomacy, but also especially in academia when it comes to the Middle East, maybe other areas as well, that people who spend their life studying Iran, for example, as I did Mm -hmm. academically – too many people in the academic community feel that they have to sort of advocate for right. their country of study. And this goes back to that famous George Schultz anecdote about whenever he would appoint a new ambassador, he would point to the globe in his office and say, show me your country. And invariably, the right, saying right. goes, he, they'd point to wherever they were going to be stationed. He would point to the United States and say, don't you ever forget this is your country. Yeah, It's sort of an advanced case of Stephen Cohen-itis, right? Exactly. Stephen Cohen, whenever... I see him on TV, I know that he is going to take Russia's side in any argument with the United States of America, you know, um, which is – but none dare call it unpatriotic. But that's a that's a topic for another day. Um, so tell me about your background. How did you end up studying, uh, studying Iran? Well, I grew up in northeast Philadelphia and I come from a whole family of veterinarians. So obviously is, you're well prepared for Iran studies then. Well, I'm, I'm a black sheep in the family because I'm allergic to dogs and cats. So I was studying biology. Uh-huh. My first degree is actually in biology. But then along came a D in organic chemistry because of all those crazy pre-meds. I can't say I was ever that intense about it. Uh-huh. And so one thing led to another. And one of the things that people don't realize, I went to Yale University. And back in the 1950s, 
a lot of the Ivy League colleges sort of divided up the world. Mm-hmm. So Yale got the Iranians and Cornell got Southeast Asia and Harvard got the Arabs and Turkey, uh, Princeton got the Turks. Now that since has faded away, but the legacy of that is still there. So that when you take Middle Eastern studies at Yale, it tends to trend a little bit more towards Iranian studies. Huh. I just caught the bug. Yeah. So you speak Persian? I, I speak Persian. I can't say I'm fluent in it. Uh-huh. Then again, my wife, who's not a native speaker of English, complains that – or doesn't complain. She says she's more fluent than I am, <laughs> um, that she's more fluent than I am when it comes to speaking English as well. I can get by in Persian. Uh-huh. Um, I could get by when I lived in Iran a lot more. They used to call me Pesari Shaitani Bozorg, which means son of the great Satan when I lived there. Ah, okay. Well, there's that. That'd be That's actually a great tattoo. So uh, we should just – Dive in. We'll we'll go back and forth on all this stuff. But um, we're recording this on January eight, January nine, something like that. Doesn't look like the Iranian protests are going to lead to the dissolution of the Iranian regime or anything like that. But do you think they have more legs in them? Where do you think they're going to go? What do you think the the lasting significance of all that is? I do think they have more legs in them. And certainly, even though the Iranian government has been saying, we're on top of this, we're on top of this, we're on top of this, ever since they closed the internet, now we're starting to get the smuggled videos that were downloaded in Beirut or in Iraq or in Afghanistan that show that these protests had continued. Mm -hmm. And the important thing about these protests are they really went to the heart of the regime. They didn't differentiate between the so-called reformists and the hardliners. They went and basically said, a pox on all your heads. So that's significant. The other thing that's significant that I don't think enough people are calling out, Jonah, is even if the regime does put these protests down, the supreme leader of Iran, Ali Khamenei, Mm. according to his own um, political and theological exegesis, he's the deputy of the Messiah on earth. Well, he's the deputy of Messiah on earth with prostate cancer. Mm-hmm. And we know this not in the realm of rumor, but in the realm of fact, because he's allowed himself to be photographed receiving treatment in a way to sort of prepare the public for for what comes next. Mm-hmm. Well, if he passes away, because Ayatollahs do, they have a habit of living a long life, but they do eventually die. Well, then if the Revolutionary Guard rallies around him now, what's going to happen when he's removed from the scene? So what we're seeing now may very well just be a dry run. I'm sorry, we're a sick ward here. I have, I'm recovering from the flu and pneumonia, and, and Michael has bronchitis. Uh, bronchitis. So my my daughter introduces herself as patient zero when, <laughs> when she meets people. So you said the protesters aren't recognizing a distinction between the re- reformists and the hardliners. How much do you recognize that distinction? Is there a real distinction between the reformists and the hardliners? Well, this is what really set me and and other analysts against each other. Because while some people would look at the reformists and see sincerity, I saw an elaborate game of good cop, bad cop. Uh And it's important to recognize that if you're an Islamic Republic reformer, you still believe in clerical rule. You believe in the idea of having an ayatollah who's acting as the deputy of the Messiah on earth. And that's something that ordinary Iranians might not actually agree to. So I'm not sure that they have ever been sincere. Certainly, when we look at someone like Hassan Rouhani who's the current president, his claim to fame was always being the regime's Mr. Fix-It. Mm-hmm. And the Iranians have mastered the art of projecting an air of moderation to external actors while really cracking heads at home, 
one of the things a lot of people don't realize is according, for example, to Amnesty International numbers and so forth, the rate of executions in Iran increases disproportionately under the reformers, like the former reformist president Mohammad Khatami or um, Hassan Rouhani now. It's almost as if they're saying, we're going to string up this guy so that you recognize that this rhetoric of reform, that's for export only. Yeah. So we should back up. I'm of the school that, that where, wherever the protests go next and what they portend, that this is a pretty damning indictment of the logic that led to the Iran deal. You know, this was supposed to – there was supposed to be a trickle-down. This was supposed to help, you know, create social peace and prosperity. And instead, according to the protesters themselves, this, this isn't going to lower the price of eggs. This is going to Hezbollah. This is going to uh, Syria and all the rest. Do you agree with that? Do you think this is an indictment of the, 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 the Iran deal? Well, there's look, there's lots of reasons for the Iran deal. But one of the things that the team Obama did was they kind of assumed that the Iranian economy functioned like a normal economy. Here's the problem. You had the Iran-Iraq war between 1980 and 1988. And it was sort of like World War I on steroids. Yeah. With barbed wire, mustard gas, rushing the trenches. Child warriors, right? Yeah. And on top of that, of course, the Scud missiles going back and forth. Right. One of the things that happened during the Iran-Iraq war inside Iran was that those that became the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, they coalesced and they became the elite force. Mm -hmm. Well, Ayatollah Khomeini gets on the radio and he says, it's like drinking a chalice of poison. That was his quote. But I have no choice but to drink from this cup if I want the revolution to end. And so he acquiesced to a ceasefire. The war to end, not the revolution. The war to end. Yeah. Okay. And therefore, you had the Revolutionary Guard think, are we just going to go back to our barracks? We became the elite force in the Islamic Republic. And what they decided to do, and I say this without moral equivalence, is take their equivalent of the Army Corps of Engineers mm -hmm. and go into the civilian enterprises so they wouldn't have to rely on the regular, ordinary Iranian budget process. They could make money on the side and use that for their own goods. Mm -hmm. And in, th this eventually grew. So today, they control about 40% of the economy. You can think of it in terms of 1930s Chicago in terms of using the military or, or the muscle to enforce the contracts, or perhaps, and I say this is a Philadelphian, 2018 Chicago. Right. But the point is that wh where I think many of my ideological compatriots get it wrong is they imagine that all these Iranians out there, they want to throw off the Islamic Republic and they want to have freedom, they want to have liberty and so forth, and maybe there's something to that. But what's really causing the spark is they want their back wages. Mm -hmm. And if you're a Revolutionary Guardsman and you own a factory, you're not going to pay those back wages if you can get away with it and people who are working in your factory have no recourse. Right. This is the reason why so many ordinary Iranian workers, working class guys, went and directly attacked the regime because they feel so helpless because the Revolutionary Guard had put themselves in a position they control oil industry, infrastructure, construction, heavy industry, all that sort of things, electronics, computers, cars. When I used to live in Tehran, Tehran's a city of 14 million people. Now, I would have to go out and, and just live on the market. So I would go to the grocery store, usually mom and pop corner stores, and get my groceries. And I was talking to these guys once and said, look, 
why is it a city of 14 million people, there's not really a supermarket? Yeah. And they said, well, we could maybe expand, but if we get too big, the Revolutionary Guard's going to come in and try to take over our business. So we have to be mindful of the limits. Right. And this is the way the Revolutionary Guard sort of distorts the economy and, and so to speak, erodes the Iranian dream. Right. So it's sort of I, – I've, I've been working on this book, and one of the things I sort of – find fascinating is the natural tendency of <coughs> classes of people in the broadest sense possible once they are they recognize their mutual self-interest to essentially become aristocracies right right so like the janissaries in turkey the commun the communist princelings in china and it becomes this sort of self-perpetuating rent-seeking class that looks out on their own interests ahead of the national interest and um, so I get that about the the Revolutionary Guard, but I guess – I mean, so part of the – doesn't this point, sort of part, in part point to the demographic distinctions between these protests and the ones in 2009? 2009 were more sort of elitist and high-minded and democratic-oriented, and the the ones in these protests are actually the lumpen proletariat and proletariat who are supposed to be the feedstock of – and the beneficiaries of the revolution? Well, I think – there, there's certainly something to that. Look, we've had protests in Iran in 1999, in 2001, in 2009, and now. It's hard to really judge what was happening in 2009 simply because so many people tried to put a positive spin on it. On one hand, people were saying death to the regime. On the other hand, the reformers were trying to co-opt it. Mm -hmm. I, I've told this joke before, but many people have really given up on the reformers, even if they once saw them as sincere – I, I mean, there's a joke about the Iranian woman who's getting married on her wedding night. She tells her husband, I probably should have told you this before, but this is my second marriage. And the husband goes, what? She said, no, 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 don't worry. I'm still a virgin. <laughs> well, how can that be? Well, my first husband was like Hassan Rouhani. He kept <laughs> promising to do it, promising to do it, promising to do it. And after six years, he didn't touch a thing. <laughs> so there's, there's a sense of just apathy. I lived in Iran during the 1999 student uprising, which started after um, a defenestration incident. Mm -hmm. It's not just for Prague anymore. At any rate, people, th those protests spread throughout the country. And Mohammed Khatami, who was di the dialogue of civilizations guy, was going to give a speech. And when he failed to stand up for the students, it really sort of diminished him. And it sort of took the air out of the whole protest movement. But every single protest movement since then has been getting more and more diverse, and it certainly looks like the Islamic Republic has been losing those whom they claim to be their base. But here's mm -hmm. the other thing. It really fascinates me that in American political journalism, rightly, people after our elections, for example, will pour over the various demographics, the various statistics and so forth to try to figure out what happened. And it doesn't matter which election. In Iran, this, the New York Times, the Washington Post, major newspapers will take at face value the Iranian statistics is given to them. Right. So the Iranians will say 70% of the people voted in our election. But what I'm hearing anecdotally, and, and I wrote this at the time after the last election, was that voter turnout was only around 12 or 13% mm. in some of the peripheral provinces. Another way to put this is it's like judging what's going on in Syracuse, New York, or Geneseo, or Watertown, New York, from the Upper West Side of Manhattan. It right. just doesn't work. Yeah. And yet, we engage in that all the time in Iran. So for the first time, we're really seeing what the periphery of Iran says, rather than simply the northern um, 
the northern neighborhoods of Tehran, which in a lot, lot of ways are like the Upper West Side. Yeah. yeah. Including real estate prices, by the way. But, and I, I, as someone who grew up on the Upper West Side, I will also stipulate there's some differences. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a few. Yeah, I, my guess is you can get better bagels on the Upper West Side. That, that's true. Um, Hands down. So, I know, so, but if I may, Jonah, uh-huh. you can probably get better bagels in Tehran than you can in Washington, D.C. You think so? Seriously, I mean, you think so? It, it, it's an open possibility. Just yeah. look, it, it's not that, a high bar. It's a commentary on D.C. That, yeah. that, that part I get. But you think there are bagels available in Tehran? Well, there are 11 kosher Iranian restaurants yeah. where you can get the kebabs and hold the, um, hold the yogurt. Right. But you probably can't get very good bagels. But often, also, a lot of people say the bagel, mm-hmm. it had its origin with the Mongols. Uh-huh. And, of course, the Mongols visited Persia first. Oh, there you go. It wasn't necessarily a happy remembrance. Right. But the fact of the matter is the Iranians have an art of attributing everything to the Iranians did it first. Yeah. So they're sort of like Chekhov from Star Trek. Yeah, I mean, well, we everything's played, a Russian invention, right? You know, <laughs> this, this is true. I mean, it, for those of us who did Iranian studies in academe, it became a drinking game to try to figure out the bicycle, the internet, right, right, Al Gore. <laughs> How is it that they were Iranian first? And and there's a way to to figure this all out. Well, if the Iranians want to claim credit for inventing Al Gore, they're free to do so. So, democracy aside, do you think so? Like. How to put this? There's a lot of people, you know, when I was reading up on the Iranian stuff, I, I obviously think that it would be in our interest, you know, it'd be in a moral interest, it'd be in our national interest to see the regime go, right? Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean that what replaces it wouldn't be equally nationalistic. It could, in fact, be much more nationalistic because there's a long history of Persian nationalism that predates. The messianism, the Shiite messianism of, of 1979, right? And so it always seems to me whenever I hear the rhetoric about their weapon, their, their atomic bomb program um, or their nuclear program, it's always couched in this sort of, this sort of nationalistic aspiration thing. I, I, obviously, you read a lot more of this stuff than I do, but I very rarely hear that the 12th imam wants us to have a nuclear bomb. Instead, it's sort of it's our it's much more like german rhetoric of our place in the sun we we are a great power we need to be a great power even those protesters in the street they might still want a nuclear program right well this is the thing let let me just backtrack you you put your finger on an important point and again there's a lot of wishful thinking especially among the american right that the iranians are overwhelmingly youthful that's not true anymore mm. that and they're overwhelmingly pro western or pro american and you're right that that's also not true but We've done, years ago, um, some private Iranians commissioned a telephone survey in which they took every telephone exchange in Tehran and they randomized the last four digits. So you get a good cross-section of the neighborhoods, not just the ones where um, parachuting journalists like to hang out for a few days, but where the Revolutionary Guardsmen live, the, the, where the factory workers in southern Tehran live and so forth. Now, Iranians culturally are much more cosmopolitan any of the peoples around them. So it's not like the contractors during the Afghanistan or Iraq war who are doing polling and people will just tell them what they want to say. The Iranians will give you a piece of their mind and an accurate piece, especially when it comes to the economy. Mm -hmm. Now, you could ask Iranians, how many jobs does the breadwinner in your family have? Has anyone in your family lost a job in the last year? Do you think your kids are going to have a better life than you do? 
And when you did all the number crunching, asking these questions a number of different ways, what you find out is about 10% of Iranians truly believe in this idea of Islamic revolution and think that things are going great. Mm-hmm. And these were sort of the hardliners or, or the so-called principalists. That's how the Iranians describe themselves. Then you have another 15% who think you have another 15% who think it was a very good thing this Islamic revolution but it's been misapplied and it can be reformed. So the Soviet analogy would be to Gorbachev mm. with perestroika glasnost and then 75% of the country think that you know the Islamic revolution has burned itself out there's no way you can reform it. But that doesn't mean they're revolutionary because last time they had a revolution they were promised an Islamic democracy Arguably, they got neither, but they got a war that killed up to a million people. Now, you take those figures where the Islamic Republic knows, knows that most people don't particularly care for them. But at the same time, you're right. Iran is this country with a near contiguous history going back 2,000 years. And they're fiercely nationalistic. They used to own what's now Bahrain, what's now Baghdad, what's now Azerbaijan, Armenia, and Georgia. Turkmenistan, the ultimate humiliation, Afghanistan, the ultimate humiliation was in 1871 when they lost what's now Pakistani Baluchistan. And the reason that's a humiliation, they lost it not to the British Army, not to the Indian Army, but to the Indo-European Telegraph Department, which is like losing (laughs) a war to the post office. At any rate, they feel they're only about half the size they should be. Right. And so if you know you're unpopular, but you know that Anecdotally speaking, maybe 90% of your population is fiercely nationalistic. It's, it's a smart move to try to rally people around the flag. Now, that's part one. Part two is intellectually. The Islamic revolution didn't come from nowhere. And there, was, there were these intellectual trends of social justice, of it like socialism. Half, it was like half Marxist. The, exactly. Yeah, right. And I mean, the amazing historically, the amazing thing about the Islamic Revolution, full 10% of the population took part. And this is an age before social media. In comparison, only 1% of Americans took part in our revolution. Only 2% of Russians took part in the Bolshevik Revolution. Mm-hmm. They were all united in what they were against. They weren't united in what they were for. Now, when you look at the intellectual trends in Iranian literature, intellectual history, and so forth, there's a seminal book back in the mid-1960s by a guy named Jalal Ali Ahmed. It was called Garbzadegi, which um, if that doesn't jump off the bookshelf to you, it's often, it's often translated as West toxification. And it basically said the reason why we've fallen so far behind is because we've been permeated too much, corrupted by Western liberalism, Western influence. So we've got to purge that from our society. You can think of it almost as a corollary to what the Muslim Brotherhood preached elsewhere like in like, Egypt. It sounds like Sayyid Qutub. And that's exactly. Yeah. And then, I mean, long story short, you have this knee-jerk anti-capitalist, anti-Western, almost xenophobic nationalism. And when I worked in the Bush administration, I know this was also true for people that worked in the Obama administration. One of the fears was when a prominent dissident would come out, you'd want to invite them to the White House. But would they stand up George Bush or stand up President Obama because they wanted to see Noam Chomsky first? Yeah. So you're going to have this sort of intellectual trend. Another way to put this just very shortly Mm -hmm. is – it's sort of like France on a, a nationalist Iran would be sort of like France on a bad day. Mm-hmm. But even France on a bad day with nuclear weapons is better than the Islamic Republic, right. where you have an ideology which proclaims that you're not a status quo power and you have to keep exporting your revolution. So the the sort of revanchist, the the the, the lost empire argument, right, of the nationalists. Yeah. How much just this is a, my own curiosity. 
how much of it is an ethno-nationalist thing and how much of it is like a France thing, right? In France, you got lots of weird little sub-ethnicities, but they all consider themselves Fran- French, right? It's not necessarily, you know, you had the guys in Algiers saying our forefather is the Gauls, right? It's this idea of trans-ethnic nationalism. In Iran, is the mainstream, is this, is it, is it tied up in an, in, in an, I don't want to say biological racist, but in an ethnic sensibility, or can the Baluchis or Turkmenis, who are also Iranian, do they also have a nationalist impulse to them? Well, you got to be sensitive when you're talking about Iran, simply because Iran literally means land of the Aryans. Uh-huh. So we don't want to go down <laughs> that path. But, but the thing about Iran is when you have a near contiguous history going back two thousand years, you have your core of nationhood and national identity predate this idea of the ethno-nationalist state that we had in the 19th century. So a lot of people forget that Iran is only a little bit more than half Persian. Even the supreme leader of Iran isn't Persian. He's an ethnic Azeri. Uh And you have Ayatollah Shahrudi, this mass murdering Ayatollah, used to be head of the judiciary. He's now getting stellar care for, I think, a brain troop tumor Mm -hmm. in Germany. People are protesting outside the hospital right now. He's actually an ethnic Arab and so forth. So Iran in some ways is a melting pot. Mm. But that said, when you have the Islamic Republic, the Islamic Republic declared Shiism to be the the core identity. There are some minorities like the Kurds and like the Baluchis where it's a double whammy against them because on one hand they're an ethnic minority. On the other hand, they're Sunni rather than Shia. And so this sort of um, being the victim of repression has heightened their sense of identity. Mm-hmm. You add into this the idea that Iran is about half the size it once used to be because so many different ethnic groups at one point or another have split off. And it, it does heighten the sensitivity, but Iranians tend to be a lot more nationalistic than other people give them credit for, which is one of the reasons, for example, why I've always opposed military action on Iran because you don't want to rally Iranians around the flag. Okay, so... The historic sense of nationhood is not, you know, wasn't Napoleon a Corsican, right? I mean, so it's sort of analogous to that, right? I'd say, yes. Yeah. um, I mean, Stalin was a Georgian. Right, 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 right. And a disproportionately large chunk of the worst Nazis were actually Austrian because they wanted to prove they were more German than anybody else, you know? Um, Arguably, they still (laughs) are. Yeah. Yeah, there's that. Don't get me started on Austria. I'm, I'm... I'm I'm still fuming about their first victim status after World War II. Um, so the so let's talk about the the Iranian Revolution just for a second. What like I, one of the first things I learned about the Iranian Revolution when I was in college, which shows you what a dork I was in college, was how much Michel Foucault was in favor of it. Right? What explains the sort of weird romanticism of um, on certain aspects of the sides of the left for a theocratic regime that violate that you know that makes Mike Pence look like a lapsed Unitarian um, in terms of his theocratic tendencies, but was so attractive to so many people on the international left, particularly in places like France? Right? That was a, well. I mean, one of the nice things about not being in power is you can posture and pretend to be whoever all you want to All things to all be. people, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so Ayatollah Khomeini has a famous of series, uh, a, a, fa- a series of famous quotes to Western newspapermen 
when he was in exile in Paris in the last months before he returned to, the, to Iran, mm-hmm. in which he said, I have, I'm an old man. I have no interest in personal power. All I want is an Islamic democracy and so on and so on and so forth. And so many people embrace that. And then it's just – I mean so you could do a serious psychological study of this sort of thing. But once people dig in deep, mm-hmm. they, they conduct intellectual somersaults to try to explain away all the worst excesses subsequently. And you have a great deal of that that has gone on inside Iran. Then much more recently – You've had this notion where a lot of Iranians, of course, fled the Islamic Revolution. They came to the United States, and they have not a single nice word to say for Ayatollah Khomeini. Mm-hmm. But the second generation, or perhaps the third generation, has started sort of conflating because the Islamic Republic's all they've ever known in their lifetime. Right. They've conflated that with Iranian pride, and that sets back the the cause of moral clarity. Again, this is just another point of personal curiosity. There's somewhere in the Quran, right, where where Muhammad says, don't get bound up in nationalistic or tribal identity, right? Don't call yourself a person of this place or that place. We are all Muslim. We're all presumably, well, I, before we get to that, theologically, I understand why Shia and Sunni split off and the succession yeah. and all that stuff. But if you had to give me the th- three main theological differences between sort of revolutionary Shiism and, say, Salafism or whatever, Sunnism, what would they be? Okay. Is this a good point to sort of cite the Judean People's Liberation Front versus the Liberation Front for the People of Judea? That'll work. Sure. Okay. I mean, in, in reality and without joking, starts as a succession struggle. Right. And you can say, well, in the end, the square, the circle should have been squared or the square should have been circled because the Imam Ali, who was the guy under dispute – ultimately got the job title anyway. But when you think about theology, it's not just the Quran. It's it's all the reports of what the prophet did. And if you think that the people who were reporting on behalf of the Shia were mistaken or were lying, then you discount everything they said, everything their students said or did over the decades, over the centuries. And so you have um, the schism deepen with time. Mm-hmm. There, there's various issues, for example, with how they pray. Um, whether to use a stone on your forehead or not to use a stone. There's various issues uh, with regard to how many times a day do you actually pray. Everyone will say there's five prayers, but can you group some of them together? The Shia basically take three three periods of time rather than five. And then there's issues relating to the imams. And the imams are the line of the successors to the Prophet Muhammad and whether or not Divinity might be the wrong word, but whether they can be inspired figures to whom you can make pilgrimages and so forth, those are the the biggest differences Mm -hmm. between how the practices occur. The other thing to keep in mind, of course, is only 10 to 15 percent of the Muslim world is Shiite. Right. But the reason why everything's in play, number one, is if you draw in your mind a, a circle around the heart of the Middle East, the Arabian Peninsula, Mesopotamia, Iran, you got a 50-50 split there, which means everything's in play. Mm-hmm. The other thing, and this is something that always drove me nuts as sort of an Iranian studies guy, is people always say, oh, the Shiites split off from, from the Sunnis. But from the Shia perspective, it was the, the Sunnis. Sunnis that split right, off. Right, right. And the only reason why – and I, I mean Bernard Lewis pointed this out, the probably the greatest living historian of, of the region – is how did people in the West back in the Middle Ages learn about Islam? 
they traveled there. But where was the first place they would go as they wanted to go to the Middle East? It was the Ottoman Empire, which was overwhelmingly Sunni. Mm -hmm. So that became the base case. Mm -hmm. And then they, they sort of internalized that narrative. The point for policymakers now is don't think of Iran as a Shiite power. Because in the Iranian mind, they see themselves as an Islamic power, right. and therefore they're not just going to limit themselves to the Shiite states. So the – but on a, on a strict theological basis, if I were to talk to a Shia imam or a, or a Sunni imam, what you're saying to me, it sounds an awful lot like the narcissism of small differences. I mean in terms of the theological precepts, right? I mean sort of like the difference between not to offend <coughs> – any Russian Orthodox people out there, but like whenever I've had Russian Orthodox and Catholic people try to explain to me their deep theological schism as a lapsed Reformed Jew, it sounds awfully small bore to me. Is it basically just a tribal power thing that with a religious overlay? You, you could say that. I wouldn't necessarily say tribal. You could say power thing with a religious overlay. At one point, the Egyptians were Shiites. Oftentimes, people would embrace Shiism simply to – I mean rulers would embrace Shiism just to differentiate themselves from – The Ottomans or whatever. From the Ottomans or, yeah. or from the other. Um, and so you have some aspect of that. I mean nowhere does this get – more clear than when you consider the Houthis today, because not all Shiites are the same. Mm -hmm. The Iranians are something called Twelvers, which means the 12th Imam went into occultation as sort of a messianic figure. The Houthis count the split somewhere around the, the, the fifth Imam and so forth. And in practice, they were much more Sunni than they were Twelver Shia. Mm -hmm. When I was in Iraq a few years ago, meeting with Nayatollah there, there was a Houthi – I mean when you're meeting with Nayatollah, the way it works is you can picture sort of like a small living room without all the sofas removed. And you're just sitting on pillows on the edge of the, the room and on the smallest edge of the room, that's where the Ayatollah sits. And so you're going to have an interview with the Ayatollah in front of all of his students and everyone else who's waiting is going to be in the room at the same time. And then afterwards you meet with the Ayatollah's oldest son in order to – he makes sure you got understood the point because sometimes they talk in riddles, mm -hmm. if you will. Um, I was going to make a Yoda analogy, but I don't want to be sacrilegious <laughs> if anyone enough. listens to this. Fair the enough. point is that there was this Houthi delegation, and this is right when the problems in Yemen started, and the, they were going with me. I mean they were in the room as I was going from Ayatollah to Ayatollah. They were the next in line invariably through all these. And the joke going around uh, Iraq was they were trying to learn Shiism because they wanted the Iranian patronage. There's also in, uh, differences through time mm. in that people often talk about how there's four schools of Sunni Islam. But at periods of Islamic history, the Shiites have been considered just one more school. So there's been five schools of Shiite Islam. What I'm always telling my students is don't assume ethnicity is fixed in time. Don't assume language is fixed in time. Don't assume religion is fixed in time. Everything is is variable. Mm -hmm. So at one point I heard you give the best short explanation of the debate about whether or not the Quran sanctions terrorism and violence and all the nasty things. And it has to do with you were, you were sort of defending, and I mean this in an analytical sense, yeah. Baghdadi. Because remember, John Kerry says that he doesn't know anything about Islam or whatever. Right. And so I think people would find it interesting. The, the, the argument about what gets precedence in terms of the order of the Quran, right? I mean, I'll just well, set it up like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, 
the core is when you think about the Old Testament and the New Testament, they're largely in chronological order. There's some loop-de-loops around Leviticus and so Mm -hmm. forth, but they're in chronological order. The way the Quran is organized is by size of chapter. And therefore, when you pick up a Quran, the first chapter is the longest, the second chapter is the second longest, and so on down the line. It has nothing to do with the order in which they were revealed. And so if you pick them up and you read them straight through, and I say this for all your listeners who grew up in the 70s and the 80s, it's like picking up a choose-your-own-adventure book without skipping to this page or skipping to that page. There's a whole science of theology, however, called Asbaba Nazul, the reason for revelations, which tries to gain insight by putting the revelations in chronological order. And the reason why this is important is Muhammad started receiving revelations through the angel Gabriel when he was 40 years old. And it's not easy being a prophet. A, a Roman Catholic priest. Tell me about it. A, the, a <laughs> Roman Catholic priest with whom I used to lecture defined <coughs> being a prophet as someone who talks to God and then proceeds to piss off everyone else around them. Because, and I say that flippantly, but the whole idea of receiving revelation is to turn conventional wisdom on its head. Right. Now, the point is when you're a minority of one, you want to be tolerant. And throughout Muhammad's lifetime, as he, the first part of his, life, the first part of receiving the revelations, a lot of the revelations were about peace and tolerance. However, as he gained more and more followers, suddenly he wasn't just creating a new religion, he was creating a new state, and a lot of the revolution, uh, revelations were about ruling others. Now, the core of extremism is that whenever you have two verses of the Quran, which are in contradiction to each other, the one which was revealed last, according to scholars, automatically contradicts all those which came before. Right. It's not holistic. It's not mix and match. It's like a software update. Exactly. Right. That, that's a great way of putting it. And so if you are an extremist, not all Muslims believe this, but if you're an extremist, that's one of your analytical rules, and that's why they will take such a hard line. Now, when Secretary of State John Kerry said, this isn't true Islam, when you would read, when you would watch any of the jihadi snuff videos, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word, I mean, it wasn't just the horrific violence. They would quote the Quran. They would quote Hadith, which were sort of like the life, the sayings, the teachings. (coughs) And invariably, they were very Islamic quotes. They were very legitimate. They may have stopped in the 13th century. Mm -hmm. So the other thing that you're getting is that you're not really updating for the last 700 years of theological interpretation. And another way to look at this is if, if we in the United States saw a woman reading from the Bible, I doubt we would all have a bonfire and burn her at the stake. Right. But it's not the 13th century anymore. It doesn't mean that in the 13th century, this was unchristian. It was just a different sense of evolution among Christianity. And of course, I mean, you know that there's a calendar, I think, out there, which is the world's greatest, um, the greatest works of literature all in a sentence. Mm -hmm. And the Old Testament is a bunch of Jews find a God and then slaughter everything in sight. If you read the Old Testament literally, there's a lot of violence in there, but there's been an evolution of religious interpretation and thought. Mm -hmm. What the Islamic State was doing was taking a very legitimate interpretation of Islam based on abrogation, based on canceling some of the earlier verses, at the same time screening out everything which came afterwards in interpretation. Okay, so I'm going to try out a long-standing theory I float at bars and the occasional op-ed. You know, Martin Kramer had that great thing about 15 years ago about searching for a Muslim Martin Luther. Mm-hmm. And there are two things that drive me crazy. A couple of things, a few things drive me crazy about it. One is 
how many people think that Martin Luther and Martin Luther King had very similar messages, and they really didn't, right? And I've always argued that um, what Islam needs more than a Muslim Martin Luther is a Muslim Pope. Mm -hmm. And the argument being that they kind of had their Muslim Martin Luther with the revolution in Saudi Arabia in the 20s, the wave of iconoclasm and uh, back-to-basics puritanism um, that marks so much of the Salafists and whatnot is very similar to the kind of stuff you see breaking out in Central Europe um, in the wake of Martin Luther. The the you know you can go to museums in Switzerland and they'll have one painting on a wall and say this is the only surviving work from this artist because the other twenty seven were burned in a bonfire. And and to me the argument is purely as an analytical thing. Forget all the theological stuff, which I have no uh, dogs in that fight is that the benefit of having a pope, or is that, uh, in, in a figurative sense, is that old institutions understand where to make compromises with modernity. And the Ottomans, for all their faults, had a certain amount of flexibility to them and a certain amount of, you know, the wrong, pontifical is the wrong word, but a secular and spiritual authority to say, we're not going to behave like that anymore. <coughs> and what has messed up the Middle East in terms of the, 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 the Muslim extremism is, is very analogous to some of the stuff that you saw with this sort of rampant Protestantism of the, of, of, of the early Reformation where, you know, Martin Luther wasn't advocating for, you know, greater social tolerance and flexibility. He was advocating for a return to the true spirit of the faith and more you know, I'm not blaming Martin Luther for this, but, you know, more witches were burned by Protestants than by Catholics. The Catholic Church tended to intervene to stop witch trials. It was... But you had to save the wood for the Jews. Well, there's that. I mean, the Jews are a different issue. So am I crazy for thinking in those terms? Um, no, no, you're not. And what you're saying is very provocative, but it's also accurate. Look, when historians look at the Middle East, the key point which they often focus on was 1798, when Napoleon invaded Egypt. Right, right. Because if, if you're supposed to be the great successor religion and suddenly you're overwhelmed with all this outside power, then you have to have a come to Muhammad moment right. and say, why is it we fell so far back? And you can go two different ways. One is saying we haven't been true to our religion enough. And the other one is to say we need to – if you can't beat them, you join them. And you have to embrace the the – the modernism and the technologies and so forth of the West. Now, we've seen this all over the place, and arguably we've seen this with regard to the Islamic Revolution in Iran as well. What worries me, by the way, when we go down this rabbit hole, and I'll get back to the whole mm -hmm. Pope argument in a second, is the real downfall of the Middle East economically. It never went into decline. It stagnated relative to Europe. And it's because of what Paul Kennedy calls the seamless web of history in that what really the death blow was the Spanish and Portuguese discovery of the New World and, and the import of or, or the export from South America and Central America of all this gold and silver right. because it, it basically paid for the Enlightenment and so forth. But if you're sitting in the Ottoman Empire or if you're sitting in the Persian Safavid Empire, you're a king on top of your treasury, and suddenly someone's importing a lot of silver and gold to Europe, what happens to your silver and gold? It becomes worth a lot less mm -hmm. inflation, and that's what really undercut 
the Middle East compared to the rest of the world. When people say it's all colonialism, mm-hmm. on one hand, they're wrong in the way they, they think about it because right. it hadn't to do with the 19th century. It had to do with the, the globalization, if you will, mm-hmm. of the world economy back in the 15th and 16th century. Now, in Sunni Islam, one of the problems that exists, which a lot of people point out, is that back around the 11th century, people talked about how the gates of Ijtihad, the gates of interpretation had closed, that all the key theological debates we're going to have have been had, and this is what you just have to accept. One of the biggest differences between the Sunnis and the Shiites theologically is the Shiites believe you always have to follow a living guide. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an ayatollah, and you can't do a la carte. You can't say what I, li- I like, what this ayatollah says about women. I like what this ayatollah says about property if you believe they're two different things. No like cafeteria Shiism. Ex- exactly. Okay. And as soon as that ayatollah dies, you have to shift to follow someone else. Mm-hmm. And it's a contractual relationship in a way because you're not just following them. In exchange for receiving your religious guidance, you pay them something called khums, which is an annual religious tax. And the person who gets the most khums can sponsor the most soup kitchens, take the most students, sponsor the most mosques, become much more prominent. But what this means is that you're constantly having a cycle of intellectual interpretation of religion that keeps up with modernity because you have to attract your followers. Mm -hmm. And so theologically, that's one of the big differences between. Mm -hmm. Now, when it comes to the Ayatollahs, this is one of the reasons, or when it comes to Iran, for example, this is one of the reasons why Iran was arguably so progressive and enlightened, not in terms of democracy, but in terms of women's rights, religious rights, and so forth, is because of how people were following the Ayatollahs. On the other hand, one of the downsides about having a a quote-unquote pope is what happens if you get a really bad one. Mm -hmm. And that's arguably what's happened inside the Islamic Republic of Iran. So earlier, just to do a little rank punditry, you seem to very diplomatically push back on my... (coughs) claim that the protests in Iran are an indictment of the Iran deal. Um, and you say well, there were lots of reasons for the Iran deal. Uh, a uh, lot of reasons to indict the Iran deal. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not a fan of the Iran deal, but I don't think that this necessarily caused it. And one of the things you have to recognize, Jonah, is that, and I know you're not saying this, but a lot of people I hear, especially people that are, are products of the Obama administration, um, have been following this for some total of eight years, is they start history with the rise of Barack Obama. Right, right. But we've had protests in 99. We've had protests in 2001. We've had protests in 2009. Each of those was before the Iran deal. And therefore, I'm looking for other variables. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But my point was not that the Iran deal caused these protests. Yeah. My point was that these protests are an indictment of the theory, or at least one of the theories behind the Iran deal, right? Oh, yeah. The Obama administration made this argument that the Iran deal would help normalize. I mean, they backed that, off. That was this. always nonsense on its face. Right. And one of the things that drove me nuts is when people say, uh, look, the biggest argument castigating the Bush administration was look at the number of centrifuges <coughs> inside Iran over the course of the Bush administration, and it expanded exponentially. Therefore, the type of coercion the Bush administration uh, practice was somehow counterproductive. Therefore, we Obamaites should shower them with love. Mm. But it, it's one of those typical things where we're so ignorant of history. Between 1998 and 2005, 
the European Union decided to shower Iran with love. They tripled European Union-Iran trade. The price of oil, meanwhile, quintupled. And about 70 percent of that hard currency windfall was invested in Iran's covert nuclear program and its ballistic missile program by none other than Iran's national security advisor, Hassan Rouhani, who now is the so-called moderate president. The point of this is there's a much stronger argument to be made that the reason why the Iranian nuclear program took off the way it did was because of too much diplomacy rather than too little diplomacy. Okay, okay. That that makes total sense to me. All right, just moving on from Iran for a second because you're, you know, despite the bounty on your head, you actually know a thing or two about Turkey as well. What do you think about the the the, the prospects for Turkey continuing its slide to authoritarianism? How? What do you think of the, you know, if you had predicted in the 1970s that Saudi Arabia would be a leading force of reform, in Iran would be the opposite. Um, people would have thought you were crazy, right? Yeah. What do you think about the changes that are going on in Saudi Arabia these days? What do you think? Do you think that Turkey is doomed? Um, should we all just buy gold? What, where, where do you come down on the larger prospects for democracy and stability in the Middle East? Look, I'm nervous about Saudi Arabia. And the reason I'm nervous about Saudi Arabia is all our eggs are now in one basket. And whether it's a force for ill, such as Vladimir Putin in Russia or Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey, or whether, as some people imagine, a force for good, as with Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, you never want to put your, your bets all on one person because that person could be gone tomorrow. You want, you want to build a much better system. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to give Mohammed bin Salman the benefit of the doubt, but if he doesn't succeed and he doesn't have a strong track record of success, mm-hmm. then ultimately we could be far worse than where we started. So I'm, I'm cautious on Saudi Arabia. That said, there's some very positive changes. You know, feminists have always gotten it wrong when they said that allowing women to drive in Saudi Arabia was a feminist issue. Mm-hmm. It's not a feminist issue just. It's an economic issue because for middle class women, wh- they wanted to work. But why couldn't they work? They couldn't work because they'd have to hire a driver to take them to work. Well, they can't hire a driver to take them to work without a job to pay for that driver's salary. Right. So it was a catch-22. That's now been rectified, and that's going to bolster Saudi Arabia's economy. But I'm worried about um, getting bogged down in the Iraq war. I'm sorry, getting bogged down in the Yemeni war the way Saudi Arabia has, as well as the pushback, which he might engender. I mean, the Ritz-Carlton is nice, but people don't like to be chained up by their feet from the rafters. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, people, people don't forget that. Yeah. And that's what we forget. Now, with regard to Turkey, one of the things U.S. policy has traditionally been bad at is that we have all our metric charts, but we never consider time. The fact of the matter is Recep Tayyip Erdogan has now been in power in Turkey for almost, for almost 15 years. Mm. That's a whole generation that has been brainwashed in the schools, that has been placed in the deep bureaucracy. Even if he's removed tomorrow, it's going to be really, really hard to undo 15 years of, of that history. And, and the way Turkish society has changed, this figure comes from the Turkish Interior Ministry, since Recep Tayyip Erdogan came to power, the murder rate of women inside Turkey has increased 1,400%. That's a big number. That's a big number because people have <laughs> a sense laugh, of impunity. shouldn't laugh, but I mean, that's, that's, that's nuts. Yeah. No, a- yeah. exactly. People have a sense of impunity that they can conduct honor killings, for example, without paying the price. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a societal problem. What Erdogan managed to do was undo all the checks and balances because we didn't like the idea of the military involved in a democracy. 
But instead of having another system in place before we unraveled the military's grip, we did that first and Erdogan said, trust me. Mm. And whenever anyone says, trust me in the Middle East, there's one conclusion you can draw. You should never trust that yeah, person. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the, the things I always learned growing up about Turkey was that there was this great tradition in the military of protecting secular regime and, and goes back to Ataturk and yada, yada, yada. All those guys, I mean, it certainly seems over the last 10 years, all those guys have been thrown in prison or killed or or at least stripped of their military um, rank. Is there any of that left in the military in Turkey? There's a little bit, but they are keeping their head down. And when you just consider the natural course of promotion over the course of Erdogan's time in yeah, power. Yeah, 15 years is a long time in a military. Yeah, I mean, basically yeah. you're talking lieutenant colonels. Yeah. Everyone up to lieutenant colonel, if not colonel, has has grown up under that system. At the same time, Erdogan has uh, has basically decapitated the top of the military and placed his own guys. So maybe you have some full bird colonels mm-hmm. and some one-star generals, but that's it. I mean, their backs against the wall and it's unclear whether or not they can they can recover. This this is going to be the big problem in Turkey, but anniversaries matter, symbolism matters, and in Turkey, we're coming to the 100th anniversary in 2023 of of the de- declaration by Mustafa Kemal Ataturk of the Republic of Turkey. And so our, all eyes are on that mm-hmm. if Erdogan really wants to become the anti-Ataturk and be known for unraveling everything Ataturk did. How does he talk about Ataturk? Well, on one hand, he talks about Ataturk respectfully. But on the other hand, he's done things with symbolism. And of course, symbolism is important where people used to, I mean, the the prime minister, when Erdogan was prime minister, used to give monthly addresses on television in which they'd stand before a portrait of Ataturk with a Turkish flag in the background. And this was changed. The background that Erdogan changed it to was the mausoleum of Ataturk with a mosque. And Hmm. so the idea was almost as if Ataturk is dead, but Islam Islam is alive. Yeah. Yeah. So just, I mean, it seems to me, you're talking about these trends going on in Iran of of nationalist aspirations melded with the Shia exporting revolution, sort of Shia Trotskyism. And you've got a guy in Turkey who is a nostalgist for Ottoman glory, right? Those two things seem to be pretty much at odds with one another. How come we don't hear more about frictions between Turkey and Iran? Well, I mean, there certainly are some, although sometimes they can come. I mean, this is what always gets me when I worked in government that people would always talk about Iranian pragmatism as if Iranian pragmatism always meant how to find a way to peace. Pragmatism can also mean how to work with your enemies to screw the United States. Right, right. And so there, there's an element to that there. The other thing that actually Iran and Turkey have a lot in common is they both have much fonder remembrances of their own empires than perhaps their subject peoples do. Mm-hmm. And so this has gotten, I mean, Iran, people in Iraq, you, you, you've heard me say this before. There's a saying down in Basra that if you if you break the bones of a Persian, poop comes out. <laughs> at, at any rate, and there's no love loss between Arab Shiites right. and Iran because people didn't like being under Iranian tutelage. The same thing is true. This whole idea of neo-Ottomanism mm-hmm. and the glories of the Ottoman Empire and sort of at the very minimum doing what the British did with the Commonwealth. The problem was a lot of the Arab states had absolutely no interest in reliving the glories of the Ottoman Empire because they found it a completely horrendous century, right. if not centuries. Right. And so there's that. When push comes to shove, 
they're not going to be on the same page. But at this point in time, they can find enough to cooperate for, especially mm-hmm. if Russia eggs on both of them to be against the United States. Right. So big picture, what are the prospects for democracy in the Middle East? Well, I mean, this is what makes the Iran protests so important. If they succeed, if the Islamic Republic falls, we're talking a whole new ballgame because you think the problems of Hezbollah largely go away. The problems of the Houthis in Yemen largely go away. Problems of some of the um, militias in Iraq and so forth. It could be a very different Middle East. That doesn't mean that the Middle East is suddenly going to transform itself into Switzerland or Liechtenstein. And they may have some elements of Austria there going back to that. (laughs) But um, (coughs) change comes very slowly. That said, what always always bothered me as an honest-to-God Iran academic is when people would assume that the Islamic Republic of Iran was the natural apex of Iranian political evolution. And the reason people said this or believe this is – I mean, in 1980, it's like with the Arab Spring in the last few years, all these publishers said, how could we miss this? Let's get books together. And all these academics said, oh, everyone else missed the signs, but this is the way it worked. Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is the Islamic Republic – sorry, the Islamic Revolution in many ways was an accident of history. And just like the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia was an accident of history and the pendulum is going to swing back. We've got to welcome that pendulum to swing back. That doesn't mean what we're going to get is a utopia of pro-American goodness. Right. But at the very least, it will be a much more normal state right. as opposed to uh, what during the Bill Clinton administration, uh, a lot of officials came to call a rogue regime. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a Hegelian in some of this stuff. And it seems to me that whenever you have a country or society that's organized around a utopian principle, because you utopianism is impossible it's what utopia means right yeah no place um you you develop a sort of in a dialectical fashion a movement for which is hard to say on a podcast e-utopia which is yeah. a, a good place right a normal place right and so it seems to me that the movement on the ground in iran may not be for democracy but it is for being a normal country right being a normal country the problem we're going to face first of all the problem we haven't addressed yet through the last 38 years is you're not going to have muddle through reform. The regime's only going to collapse when the, revo- um, when the security forces are shattered. Right. So we always talk hardliners versus reformers in politics. What are the factional divisions within the Revolutionary Guard? And then the follow-up question is how do you work to exploit those and to widen those so that the Iranian public can be victorious? At the same time, just summing up what we said, if 40% of the economy is dominated by the Revolutionary Guard, even if the regime collapses tomorrow, even if the protests in 2018 become Romania 1989 rather than Tiananmen Square 1989, what happens to the elements of the Revolutionary Guard and their multi-billion dollar business empire? That's something we're going to be facing for some time to come. So... What do we do about it? I mean, let's say that we all agree that the end result, that that it would be in America's national interest, never mind in in everyone's moral interest, for the regime to go under. And even if what follows it isn't necessarily a Western-style democracy, but a sort of nationalistic but more normal country, how do you expedite that process? How do you make... Get, get closer to do it. What, in terms of this concrete policy from the United States, how do you foment and encourage regime change? Well, number one, 
you, I mean, just in background, I have a long article about this back in commentary from the year 2010, mm. in which I go step by step. But first of all, it's not all about us. No one wants foreign military intervention. We're not talking about Iraq 2003. Right. The one tool which I would use, and, and I'm not afraid, unlike President Obama in 2009, of standing up and having Americans speak out on principle like Donald Trump did, like Nikki Haley has done. Simply, I mean, the counter argument to that is you're going to get the Iranian government to castigate everyone as a foreign flunky. But if they do that anyway, why not stand up for what's right? Right. Now, I would name and shame the Europeans into supporting independent labor in Iran mm -hmm. and the trade unions. Ultimately, that's what brought down the Islamic Republic in 1979. I'll be a cynic. If you have a strong independent labor movement inside the Islamic Republic of Iran, and it's one of the few countries in the Middle East that has independent labor unions ever since 2005, mm -hmm. at the very least, the money being paid to those unions is money that's not going to the missile program. Right, right. On the other hand, if it creates a spark, which creates another spark, I'm not going to shed any tears. Mm -hmm. I mean, I find it astounding that the European Green Party is willing to fund independent labor everywhere in the world except in the Islamic Republic of Iran. Mm -hmm. And and so that is one issue I would go A to. solidarity model, sort of Poland. Kind exactly. Of, yeah. And at the same time, when it comes to international broadcasting, yeah, it's true that anything the United States says might be dismissed as propaganda. But on the other hand, Iran actually has a very active press, especially among local papers. And so why not just take an Iranian local paper if there's a story about something going on, a factory that's cheating its workers down in some province? Why not just read that word for word? Yeah. You can't dismiss it as propaganda yeah. if its origin is in Iran. You're just amplifying it to a national story. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, last question because I know we were running, running along here. Something I ask almost all the guests, at least first-time guests on this, I always like to ask, what, what thing about – Washington, from your experience here, either surprised you the most from your expectations or would surprise people listening to this about their expectations. Now, I'll give you some examples so you know where I'm coming from. Yuval Levin, I asked him about this, and his, uh, his answer was that nobody really knows what they're doing, right? This idea that there is this ability to... Uh, conceive of a plan of action, implement a plan of action, and have it actually pay off, completely misunderstands the way our chaotic democracy works, and everyone is just trying to move the noodle across the carpet as best they can. Senator Ben Sass went a different way and talked about the shocking amount of inappropriate nudity in the Senate gym locker room. Uh, Steve Hayes talked about how um, this notion that all conservatives who disagree on Trump or on the prevailing moment of the day, they're doing so because they just want to go to Georgetown cocktail parties, that kind of thing. What doesn't matter. It's funny, serious, whatever. What, what, if you were talking to your relatives in Pennsylvania who are all vets or whatever it is, and they've had this idea about how Washington works, what would you tell them? You'd be surprised to know this. I, I'm with you, Val Levine on this yeah. in that Washington makes sausage making look organized. Yeah. Uh, and the fact of the matter is Iran and the Middle East in general is the land and the, the subcontinent, if you will, of conspiracy theory. And there's, it's deeply ingrained in their culture. People assume that there's got to be a reason why the United States acts the way it does. And I'm not sure people realize 
just how random and personality-driven some of what comes out of Washington is. The old adage that personnel is policy really does matter. Um, I've also grown, frankly, much more cynical over time. When I was in high school, I would read the, the New York Times or the Philadelphia Inquirer, but I wouldn't really pay attention to bylines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The more I, I live in Washington, the more I saw, I mean, from my short time in the Bush administration, what happened versus the way it was reported, the more cynical I've gotten toward journalism as as a whole. And the way someone explained this best to me is after Watergate, you had the foundation of many different schools of journalism and people joined to, to change the world. In the old days, the way you would gain your training to be a journalist would be to hit the beat on foot, the who, what, when, where, right. and maybe the why. Cover city council meetings and that kind of stuff. A- exactly. And, uh, I mean, as a profession, while I'm loath to agree with Donald Trump on what he often calls fake news and so forth, um, on the other hand, there has to be a reckoning within the field of journalism just about the cynicism and the bubble in which um, so many journalists exist. Yeah. I mean, the echo chamber thing, I think, is real. It, well, it's real. And also the other thing which has completely disappointed me, if, if we want to talk about journalism, is this idea of personality-driven journalism, which really started – I mean, well, we had the big networks, but on the cable networks, it really goes back to Operation Desert Storm in 1991 mm-hmm. uh, with people on the ground and, and this development of the personality. I'm really not sure outside of Washington and New York whether many – realize that ordinary Americans simply don't care. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, on that cheery note, thanks for coming on. <laughs> Thank you, Jonah. That was great. Thank you. Judean people's front. Well, the people's front of Judea. Judean yeah. people's front. Wankers. <laughs> All right. So Michael's left the room and uh, I'm here with Jack again. And uh, I don't know if lis- what listeners will think of that conversation. I liked it. I like talking to people who really know stuff in a granular way and and michael does he's um pretty intense about all this stuff but i i get a lot out of him that thing about that we were talking about um the sort of conspiratorial thinking of middle eastern countries and how they projected onto the united states it reminded me of this quote that i wanted to bring up while we were talking but i couldn't remember it exactly and i just looked it up um it's from gamal nasser who's the you know the egyptian nationalist president and champion of pan-Arab nationalism. And he had this line where he says, the genius of you Americans is that you never make clear-cut stupid moves, only complicated stupid moves, which make us wonder at the possibility that there may be something to them that we are missing. (laughs) And I think that while it's obviously obviously true that America makes stupid moves and we do stupid things, um, I've always liked that line because I think in reality what people like Putin or Nasser or or the the Ayatollahs think is stupid is actually idealism, is that we actually believe in something. And when you work on the assumption that your enemies are always sort of like Littlefinger says in Game of Thrones, acting on the worst motives possible, when they do something noble and idealistic, it must seem incredibly stupid. And I've always sort of thought that that was sort of why... Um, we're so confusing to a lot of countries is that we don't operate purely on some hackneyed notion of realpolitik, and I, I think realpolitik is is garbage anyway. I think realism is garbage, but that's a subject for another day. Uh, so anyway, 
Uh, we we went a little long, so we're going to keep the house cleaning and, and stuff to a minimum here. But, Jack, you've been running the Remnant Twitter feed, right? What is, it, what is our Twitter handle? Oh, I'm not running it. I, at this point, it's beyond my control. Um, it's become self-aware? Yeah. I, I'm just doing my best to keep it contained and pre- and prevent it from leaking out and taking over the rest of the Internet. But it's uh, you can follow it at Jonah Remnant and see if my efforts are successful or if they're not. And uh, you were soliciting some advice from from followers and listeners, I should say, on a host of subjects. We're going to leave off how to um, crush the weekly substandard and gain a cult-like following like they have as a subject for another day, in part because they are already such a speck in our rearview mirror that I don't really see the need to sort of belabor the point too much, but we can get back to that um, on the next podcast. But you also solicited some suggestions from people that kind of went dry. I mean, I didn't quite solicit them, uh, but I, I got advice that you need a sign-off catchphrase. Okay. And, work on that. And uh, after the wildly popular readings of both Bigfoot and Trump erotica on this podcast, I sort of on a lark asked the uh, Twitter account, since, again, I don't control it. It's, right. it's beyond me. It's sort of like that scene at the end of Close Encounters where they take their hands off the keyboard and it just starts playing by itself. Exactly. That's okay. exactly what's going on. Uh-huh. <clears throat> But I asked just on a on a whim to see if we could get Trump slash or Trump Bigfoot slash fiction, I believe is what that was uh-huh. is known as. Uh which originated the origin, fun fact, of slash fiction is Kirk Spock. Uh-huh. That was the first slash fiction. And uh And slash fiction means just uh creating your own contributions to the extended universe of some fandom. Oh no, that's fan fiction. Slash fiction is when you uh, is fan fiction erotica like when you pair up oh, two characters? That's right. There was a gay thing between Spock and Kirk. Right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 when you yeah, pair yeah. up two characters who do not otherwise uh, have relations in the actual property. Uh-huh. So I asked, to, I tried to get some Trump Bigfoot slash fiction erotica, whatever we want to call it. And we actually got some. It's it's there. It exists. Rule thirty four prevails. But I I don't think I want to read it. Yeah, I don't think I want you to read it. Um, that's that's. I mean, on this podcast, I've already read it. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> uh, th- that's deeply troubling, and um, I think that might. We've been, you know, I said in the last podcast of 2017 that um, I wanted to get weirder, but uh, I think we're gonna we're gonna stop short of you reading listener generated uh, erotic fiction between Bigfoot and and Donald Trump. Call me a prude. Uh, <laughs> you um, are. And um, so, again, we're going to try and do two podcasts this week. Tomorrow, uh, my friend and colleague Charles Murray is going to come in, and we're going to talk about all sorts of things. And when that airs, probably, it'll probably air at the end of the week, so stay tuned for that. Uh, please, um, I know we had that hiatus, uh, but please keep the uh, positive reviews at iTunes coming. Please uh, subscribe if you haven't. That really matters. Um, we'd love to have you listen to this at the National Review site. That's fine. But it doesn't count towards our metrics. Um, if you do it that way, if you sign up at, at Overcast or iTunes or what what are some of the other places? Stitcher. Stitcher. Um, that counts as a subscriber, and those numbers matter a lot. Please visit tripping.com slash dingo and, and do what you can there. Send uh, feedback to the remnantpod at gmail.com. That's right, remnantpod at gmail.com. And um, other than that... Uh, we'll uh, we'll get back to you very soon for the next one. Oh, and oh, by the way, send me suggestions for uh, sign-off catchphrases. Mm, I mean, yeah. I mean, I I wanted to do a um, 
like from the Warriors, a Cyrus, can you dig it? But I don't think that works at the end, right? That's more of an introductory phrase. Uh-huh. And I, use, say, I do say in my normal life, keep hope alive a lot, but... Hope is a fleeting emotion between punches to the groin. That's right. So um, uh, if listeners have suggestions for better catchphrases, I think that's a great use of our Gmail account or our Twitter feed. And um, on the next episode, I'll tell you what I thought of uh, uh, Last Jedi and various other things. And thanks for tuning in. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.